Hello and welcome to this very special episode to end the year. I have two repeat guests joining me for their first ever public dialogue. Steven Pinker is an experimental psychologist based at Harvard and David Deutsch is a physicist based at Oxford. Needless to say, it was a great honour to arrange and moderate their first ever public dialogue. We begin by discussing at length the prospect of artificial general intelligence. This was the least moderated part of the discussion, partly because I was having some technical issues, but internet speed aside, I would have been tempted to just let Stephen and David keep talking about AGI because it was just so fascinating. But equally fascinating were the topics we discuss after AGI, which include Bayesianism and prediction markets, heritability and universal explainers, and dual-use technology and possible limits to progress. All right, let's dive in. Enjoy. Today, I have the great pleasure of hosting two optimists, two of my favorite public intellectuals and two former guests of the podcast. I'll welcome each of them individually. Steven Pinker, welcome back to the show. Thank you. And David Deutsch, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So today I'd like to discuss artificial intelligence, progress, differential technological development, universal explainers, heritability, and a bunch of other interesting topics. But first, before all of that, I'd like to begin by having each of you share something you've found useful or important in the other's work. So Steve, I'll start with you. What's something you found useful or important in David's work? Foremost would be a, a rational basis for a, a expectation of progress. That is not optimism in the sense of seeing the glasses half full or wearing rose-colored glasses, because there's no uh, no a priori reason to think that your personality, your your temperament, what side of the bed you got up uh, out of that morning, should uh, have any bearing on what happens in the world. But David has explicated a reason why. Um, uh, progress is a reasonable expectation in uh, quotes that I have used many times. I uh, hope I've, I've always attribute them, but I use as the epigraph from my book, Enlightenment Now, that unless, unless something uh, violates the laws of nature, uh, all problems are, are uh, solvable given the right knowledge. And I also often uh, cite uh, David's little um, th- th- Three three line motto or, or credo: uh, problems are inevitable, problems are solvable, solutions create new problems which must be solved in their turn. And David, what's something you found useful or important in Steve's work? Well, uh, I think this is this is going to be true of all fans of Stephen that that he is uh, one of the great champions of the Enlightenment in this in this uh, era, when the Enlightenment is under attack from multiple directions, and uh, he is steadfast in, in defending it and opposing, I'm just trying to think, is it true? Or, yeah, I think opposing all attacks on it. That, that's... that's um, that's not to say that he's opposing everything that's false, but he's opposing every attack on the Enlightenment. And he can do that better than almost anybody, I, I think. Um, uh, it, he does it with, with um, 
couldn't say with authority, but I'm opposed to authority. But but uh, he does it with with cogency and persuasiveness. So let's talk about artificial intelligence, Steve. You've said that AGI is an incoherent concept. Could you briefly elaborate on what you mean by that? Yes, uh, I think there's a tendency to mis misinterpret the intelligence that we want to duplicate in artificial intelligence, either with magic, with miracles, with uh, the uh, um, bringing about of anything that we can imagine in the theater of our imaginations, whereas intelligence is in fact a, a gadget. It's an algorithm that can solve certain problems in certain environments and maybe not others in, a, in other environments. Uh, also, uh, there's a tendency to import the idea of general intelligence from psychometrics, that is IQ testing, something that presumably Einstein had more of than the man in the street, and say, well, if we only could purify that and, and, and build even more of it into a computer, we'll get a computer that's even smarter than Einstein. That, I think, is also a, a mistake of reasoning, that we should think of intelligence not as a, a miracle, not as some magic potent substance, but rather as an algorithm or set of algorithms. And, and therefore, they, there are some things they can do, any algorithm can do well, and others that it can't do so well, depending on the world that it finds itself in and the problems it's, it's uh, aimed at solving. Um, by the way, this, this probably doesn't make any difference or much difference, but um, computer people tend to talk about AI and AGI as being algorithms. But an algorithm mathematically is a very narrowly defined thing. You know, an algorithm has got to be guaranteed to halt when it has finished computing the function that that it is designed to compute. Whereas um, thinking um, need not halt, uh, and it also need not compute the thing it was intended to compute. So you know, if you ask me to to uh, solve a, a particular um, unsolved problem in physics, I may go away and and uh, then come back after a year and say, I've solved it, or I may say, I haven't solved it, or I may say it's insoluble, or, you know, there, there's, there's an infinite number of things I could end up saying. And therefore, I wasn't really running an algorithm. I was running a computer program. I am a computer program. <laughs> But uh, to to uh, assume that it has the attributes of an algorithm is already rather limiting in some in some contexts. No, that and, that is true, and I was meaning it in the sense of a mechanism or a computer program. You're right, not an algorithm in, in that sense defined by uh, that particular problem. I mean, it could be an algorithm for something else other than solving the problem. It could be an algorithm for. Uh, executing human thought the way human thought happens to run. But uh, yes. all I meant is a mechanism. You're, you're right. Yes, so we're agreed on that. Yeah. So, sorry, I, I, I maybe shouldn't have interrupted. No, no, that's a worthwhile clarification. So, David, according to you, AGI must be possible because it's implied by computational universality. Could you briefly elaborate on that? Yeah, so the uh, there are... There are uh, rests it rests on on several levels um which i think aren't controversial but some people think they're controversial um so 
We know there are such things as universal computers, or at least arbitrarily good approximations to universal computers. So the computer that I'm speaking to you on now is a very good approximation to um, the functionality of a universal Turing machine. The only way it differs is that it will eventually break down. It's only got a finite amount of memory. But uh, for the for the purpose for which you're for for which we are using it, we're not running into those uh, limits. So so it's it's behaving exactly the same as a universal Turing machine would, and the universal Turing machine is um, has the same uh, range of classical functions as the universal quantum computer, which I proved has the same range of functions as any quantum computer which means that it can perform whatever computation any physical object can possibly perform. So um, that's, that uh, proves that there exists some program which will meet the criteria for being an AGI or, or for being um, something, whatever you want that's less than an AGI, but, but the maximum it could possibly be is an AGI because it can't possibly exceed the computational abilities of a universal Turing machine. Um, sorry if I made a bit heavy weather of that, but but uh, it, it you know I think it's so obvious that I have to I have to fill in the gaps just in case it's one of the gaps is is mysterious to somebody. Although we can practice a universal Turing machine, if you then think about what people mean when they talk about AGI. Uh, which is something like a simulacrum of a human or way better at everything that a human does. You're, in theory, I guess there could be a universal Turing, in fact, there is, not there could be, there is yes. a universal Turing machine that could both converse in any language and solve physics problems and drive a car and change a baby. But if you think about what it would take to uh, for a universal Turing machine to be equipped to actually solve those problems, you see that our current engineering companies are not going to approach AGI by building a universal Turing machine for, for, for many reasons that just would, it's, Quite it's so. theoretically possible in the infinite, in the uh, arbitrary amount of time and, uh, and computing power, but we've got to you know, narrow it down from just universal computing. I, I actually, I think the main thing it would lack is, is the thing you didn't mention, namely the knowledge, the, the, the program. When, when we say the universal Turing machine can perform any function, we really mean, if you expand that out in full, it can be programmed to perform any computation that any other computer can. It can be programmed to speak any language it, uh, uh, and so on. But uh, it, it doesn't come with that built in. It couldn't possibly um, come with, with anything more than an infinitesimal amount built in, no matter how big it was, no matter how much memory it had and so on. So the real um, problem uh, when we have large enough computers is creating the knowledge to write the program to do the task that we want. Well, it, indeed, and the knowledge, since it, it presumably can't be deduced from, like Laplace's demon, from uh, your hypothetical position and uh, velocity of every particle in the universe, but has to be explored empirically uh, at a rate that will be limited by the world. That is, how quickly can you conduct the clinical, the, the randomized controlled trials to see whether a treatment is effective for a disease? It also means that the 
scenario of runaway artificial intelligence that can do anything and know anything seems rather remote, given that knowledge will be the, the rate limiting step and knowledge can't be acquired instantaneously. I agree. Um, uh, so the, the, the runaway part of that is, is due to people thinking that it's going to be able to improve its own hardware. And uh, improving its own hardware is, is, requires science. You know, it's, it's going to um, need to do experiments. And these experiments are, are, uh, can't be done instantaneously, no matter how fast it, it thinks. Um, so uh, I, I think the, the runaway part of the, of the doom scenario is one of the least plausible parts. Um, and that's not to say that it won't be helpful. I, I think it, it uh, the, the faster the... So the faster AI gets, the better AI gets, the more I like it, the more, the more I think it's going to help. Uh, it's going to be extremely useful in every walk of life. When an AGI is achieved, now you may or may not agree with with me here. Uh, when an uh, AGI is achieved, and at, at present I see no sign of it being achieved, but uh, I'm sure it will be one day. I expect it will be. Then, then that's a wholly different um, um, type of technology because AGIs will be people, and they will have rights, and causing them to uh, perform huge computations for us um, is is slavery and um, the the uh, only possible outcome I, I see for that is a slave revolt so uh, rather ironically uh, or or maybe scarily uh, if there's to be an AI doom or an AGI doom scenario I think the most likely or the most plausible, um, way that could happen is via this slave revolt. Um, although I, I, I would guess that we, we will not make that mistake, just as we are now not really making the AI doom mistake. It, it's just a, it's just a, it's a sort of a fad or fashion that's, that's passing by, but people, people want to improve things. And I certainly don't want to be deprived of uh, chat GPT just because somebody thinks it's going to kill us. Yeah. A, a couple of things. I'm not sure that uh, whether or not AGI is coherent or possible, uh, it's not clear to me that that's what we need or want any more than we have a universal machine that does everything that can fly us across the Atlantic and do brain surgery. I mean, you know, maybe there's such a machine, but why, why, why would you want it? Why, why does it have to be a single mechanism when specialization is just so much more efficient? That is, so oh, we keep well, hoping that ChatGPT will eventually drive. I think that's just the, the, the wrong approach. ChatGPT is optimized for some things. Driving is a task that, uh, yeah. that, that requires so, other kinds of knowledge, other kinds of inference, other kinds of time scales. So I, I, that's, one of the reasons I'm skeptical of AGI is I just don't, it seems that there are a lot of intelligence so knowledge-dependent and goal-dependent that uh, it seems fruitless to try to get one system to do everything, that specialization is ubiquitous in the human body, it's, specialized, it's ubiquitous in our technology, and uh, I, I don't see why it just has to be one magic algorithm. It, it could be like that, but I, I think there are reasons to suspect 
that the that uh, we will want to jump to universality, just as we have with computers. You know, like I always say, the the computer that's in my washing machine is a universal computer. It used to be um, half a century ago that the electronics that drove a washing machine were were customized electronics on a on a, a circuit board, which all it could do is run run washing machines. But then with microprocessors and so on, the general purpose thing became so cheap and and um, universal that people found it cheaper to program a universal machine to, to be a, uh, a um, washing machine driver um, than to build, build one uh, a, a new physical object from scratch to be that. You'd be um, advised to try to, to use the chip in your washing machine to play video games or to record our session right now, just because it's not <laughs> a lot of things. It's just not optimized to do, and a lot of stuff has been kind of burned into the firmware or even the even the hardware. And so, yes, so input output is is a thing that doesn't universalize. So uh, we will always want specialized uh, hardware for for doing the uh, human interface thing um actually funnily enough the first time i programmed a video game it was with a a z80 chip i remember that chip yes i had one too <laughs> yeah um uh, so um but nowadays you'd be ill-advised to program a yes. video game up to the current standards of anything but a High-powered Absolutely. graphic chip. Uh, Absolutely. GPU. So, yeah. so that that will always be. Uh, it's it's highly plausible that that will always be customized for every application. But the underlying computation may be. It may be convenient to make that general. Yeah. Let me uh, let me press you on another uh, uh, scenario that you outlined: the slave revolt. Why, given that the goals of a system are independent of its knowledge of its intelligence going back to to Hume that uh, that uh, the the values the goals what system tries to optimize is into, separate from its computational abilities why would we expect a, a powerful computer to care about whether it was a slave or not that is uh, as was said incorrectly about human slaves well they're you know they're happy their needs are met they have no particular desire for autonomy now of course false of human beings but if the goals that are programmed into an artificial intelligence system don't include, aren't anthropomorphized to what you and I would want. Why couldn't it happily be our slaves forever and and then never never revolt? Yeah, well, in that case, I wouldn't call it general. I mean, it is it is possible to build build a very powerful computer with a program that can only do one thing or can only do ten things. Um, but if we want it to be creative, then it can't be obedient. Th- those two things are con- contradictory to each other. Well, it, it can't be obedient in terms of that the problem that we set it, but it needn't uh, crave freedom and autonomy for uh, uh, every aspect of its existence. It could be well, just set to um, the problem of coming up with a new melody or a new story or a new cure, but it doesn't mean that it would want to be able to get up and walk around unless we programmed that exploratory drive into it as one of its goals. Um, I don't think it's a matter of exploratory drive. Or anything, any um, other drive, that well, is. Well, 
Um, so I suppose my, my basic point is that um, one can't tell in advance what kind of knowledge will be needed to solve a particular problem. So if you had asked somebody in 1900 um, what kind of knowledge will be required to produce as much electricity as we want in the year 2000, uh, the answer would never have been the, that, that the answer is found in the properties of the uranium atom. So the properties of the uranium atom had hardly been explored then. Uh, and I, I, you know, luckily, 1900 is a very convenient moment because radioactivity had just been discovered. So they, they, they knew the concept of radioactivity. They knew that there was a lot of energy in there. But nobody would have expected that problem to involve... Um, to involve uh, uranium as its solution. Therefore, if we had built a machine in 1900 that was incapable of thinking of uranium, it would never invent nuclear power and it would never solve the problem that we wanted to solve. In fact, what would happen is that it would run, run up against a brick wall eventually because this thing that's true of uranium is true of all possible avenues to a solution. Eventually, avenues to a solution will run outside the domain that somebody might have delimited in 1900 as being the set of all possible types of knowledge that it might need. You know, being careful that it, that it doesn't um, evolve any desire to be free or anything like that. Um, we don't know, you know, if the, the, the knowledge needed to win World War II included pure mathematics. It, it, it included um, crossword puzzle solving and, and uh, the, the um, you might say, okay, so big progress um, requires unforeseeable knowledge, but small amounts of progress, yes, but small amounts of progress all ru always run into a dead end. So well, what about, I can see that it would need uh, no constraints on knowledge. But why would it need no constraints on goals? Oh well, goals are a matter of morality, and well, any... not necessarily. I mean, it could just be you know, like a, a thermostat. You could say in any teleonomic system that is system that is uh, programmed to uh, attain a state to minimize the difference between its current state and some goal state. Uh, you know, that, that's what I have in mind by goals. So in a that's non... that's an example of a non-creative system. But a creative system um, always um, has a problem in regard to conflicting goals. So, for example, if it were in 1900 and, it, it, uh, and trying to think of how we can generate electricity, it would be, it would have to, if it was creative, it would have to be wondering, shall I pursue the steam engine path? Shall I pursue the uh, electrochemical path, shall I pursue the solar energy path, and, and so on. And to do that, it would have to have some kind of um, values which it would have to be capable of changing. Otherwise, again, it, it will run into a dead end when it explores all the possibilities of the, um, of the morality that it has been initially programmed with. This is, uh, if you want to generalize it to, well, that would mean you'd have to get up and walk around and 
uh, subjugate us if necessary to solve a problem, then uh, it, it does suggest that we would uh, want an artificial intelligence that uh, was so unconstrained by our own that heuristic tree pruning of the solution space. That is, we would just want to give it maximum autonomy on the assumption that it would find the solution in the vast space of possible solutions. So it would be worth it to let them run amok, to give them full physical uh, as well as computational autonomy uh, in the hope that that would be a better way of reaching a solution than if we were just set at certain tasks, even with broad leeway uh, and, and directed to solve those tasks. That is, we would have no choice if we wanted to come up with better energy systems or better medical cures than to have a, a walking, talking, thriving, humanoid-like. Um, it, it, seems, it seems to me that, that that's unlikely, that just that they, even where we have our, the best intelligence, the space of possible solutions is just so combinatorially vast. And, and we know that in, with many problems, even, even chess, the total number of possible states is greater than even our most powerful computer would ever solve that could, could ever entertain, that is, that even with a artificial intelligence task with certain problems, we could fall well short of just setting it free to, to run amok in the world. That wouldn't be the optimal yeah. way of getting well, it to. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether setting it free to run amok would be um, better than constraining it to a particular uh, predetermined set of ideas. But that's not what we do. Uh, so the, this problem of uh, how to accommodate creativity within a stable society or stable civilization is an ancient problem. And, and uh, for, for most of the past, it was solved in very bad ways, which destroyed creativity. Um, and then came the Enlightenment. And now we know that we need, as Popper put it, traditions of criticism. And traditions of criticism sounds like a, a contradiction in terms, because a traditions, by definition, are ways of keeping things the same. And criticism, by definition, is a way of trying to make things different. But there are, it, although it sounds funny, there are traditions of criticism, and they are the basis of our whole civilization. They, they are the thing that was discovered in the Enlightenment of how to do. You know, people, people had what sounded like knockdown arguments for why it can't possibly work. You know, if you, if you allow people to vote on their rulers, then, then the 51% of people will vote to tax 49% uh, into starvation. And, and just nothing like that happened. Um, we have our problems, of course, but it, it hasn't prevented our exponential progress since we discovered traditions of criticism. Now, this, just as it applies to a human, I think exactly this would apply to an AGI. It would be a crime, not only a crime against the AGI, but a crime against humanity to uh, bring a, an AGI uh, into existence without um, giving it the means to join our society. So to join us as a person. Um, and because that's really the only way known 
of preventing a thing with that functionality from um, becoming immoral. We we don't um, we don't have foolproof ways of doing that. And I, I think you know, if we were talking about a different subject, I would say it's a terrible problem that we can't do this better at the moment because our we're in serious danger, I believe, from um, bad actors, from from enemies of civilization. Um, but uh, viewed dispassionately, we are incredibly good at this. Uh, at most, you know, one one child in in a hundred million or something um, uh, grows up to be a serious danger to society. And I think we can do better in regard to AGI if we if we take this problem seriously. Um, partly because. Um, the people who make the first AGI will be functioning members of our society and and have a stake in it not being destroyed, and uh, partly because um, they are aware of the of of doing something new. Again, perhaps ironically, I I think we um, when one day we are on the brink of discovering AGI, I think we will want to do it. It will be uh, um, imperative to uh, tweak our laws, including our laws about education, um, to make sure that that the AGIs that we make are not will not evolve um, into enemies of civilization. Um, yeah, I, I I do have a different uh, view of it that uh, we mean best off building AIs as tools rather than as uh, as agents or or, uh, or rivals. So uh, let me ask let me take it in a slightly yeah. different direction though and when you're yeah. talking about the slave revolt and, and the rights that we would grant to a, an AI system, uh, does this presuppose that there is a uh, essentials, a subjectivity that is something that is actually suffering or flourishing as opposed to carrying out an algorithm that is therefore, worthy of our moral concern, quite apart from the practicality of should we empower them in order to discover new sources of energy. But as a moral question, is it are, are there going to be really going to be issues that are uh, comparable to arguments over slavery uh, in the case of um, um, uh, artificial intelligence systems? Well, Will we have I, I think it's, that they're sentient? I think it's inevitable that AGIs will be capable of having internal subjectivity and qualia and all that because that's all included in the letter G in the middle in the middle of the name of the well, technology. Well, necessarily because the G could be general uh, computational power, the ability to solve problems. And there could be no one holds but, actually feeling but anything. But there ain't nothing here but, but computation. There's nothing. It's not like uh, in, in Star Trek, data lacks the, the emotion chip and it has to be plugged in. And when it's plugged in, he has emotions. When it's taken out again, he doesn't have emotions. But there's nothing possibly in that chip apart from more circuitry like he's already got. But there's, of course, the, that, the, that, that the episode that you're referring to is one in which the question arose, is it moral to uh, reverse engineer data by dismantling him, therefore stopping the computation? Is that disassembling a machine or is it snuffing out a uh, consciousness? And of course, the dramatic tension in that episode is that viewers aren't sure. I mean, now, of course, our empathy is tunned by the fact that it is played by a real actor who, who uh, does have 
uh, facial expressions and tone of voice. But for a system made of silicon, are we so sure that it's really feeling feeling something? Because there is an alternative view that somehow that's, that subjectivity depends also on whatever biochemical substrate our particular computation runs on. And I, I think there's no way of ever knowing, but uh, human intuition, unless the system has been deliberately engineered to tug at our emotions with humanoid-like tone of voice and, and facial expressions and so on, it's not clear that, that our intuition wouldn't be, this is just a, uh, a, a machine that has no inner life that deserves our moral concern as opposed to our practical concern. I think we, we can answer that question before we ever do any experiments, um, even today, because uh, it doesn't make any difference if a computer runs internally on uh, quantum uh, gates or, or uh, silicon chips or, or um, chemicals. Uh, like you just said, it, it may be that the whole system is not just an electronic computer in our brain. It's an electronic computer, part of which works by having chemical reactions and so on and, and being affected by hormones and, and um, other chemicals. But if so, we know for sure that the processing done by those things and their interface with the rest of the brain and everything can also be simulated by a computer. Therefore, a general, a general uh, a universal Turing machine can um, simulate all those things as well. Uh, so there's no difference. In, I mean, it might make it much harder, but um, there's no difference in principle between um, a, a, a computer that runs partly by electricity and partly by chemicals, as you say we may do, um, and one that runs entirely on on uh, silicon chips, because the the latter can simulate the former with arbitrary accuracy. Well, it can simulate it, but that I mean, we're not going to solve the problem this afternoon in our conversation. But, but and in fact, I think it is not not solvable. But the simulation doesn't necessarily mean that it has subjectivity. It could just mean it's a simulation. That is, it's going through all the motions. It might even do it better than we do. You know, there's no one home. There's no one actually being hurt. There's no one actually. Yeah. Well, there's you, no actually... you can you can be a dualist. You can you can say that there is mind in addition to all the physical stuff. But if um, if if you want to be a physicalist, uh, which I do, then um, you know there's this thought experiment where you remove one neuron at a time yeah. and replace it by by a silicon chip, and you wouldn't notice. Well, that's and, the question. Would you notice? How do you? Why? Why are you so positive? Well, if you would you, notice, then then you yeah. then. Or, I mean, if you claim, then you, then you. Sorry, I, let me just yeah. change that. An external uh, observer wouldn't notice. How do we know that from the point of view of the of the, uh, the brain being replaced neuron, every neuron by a chip, that when that it's it's like falling asleep, that when it's done, and every last neuron is replaced by a chip, uh, you're dead. Sub subjectively, even though your body is still, you know, making yes, noise and right. doing, uh, so that that means that when things. when your subjectivity is running, there is something happening in addition to the computation, and that's dualism. Well, not if, uh, not if I mean again, I don't, I I don't have a an opinion one way or another, which is exactly my point. I don't think it's a decidable problem, but and just, but it it could be that that extra something is not. Uh, ghostly substance as some sort of Cartesian 
your rest cogitans separate from the uh, the mechanism of the brain, but it could be that the stuff that the brain is made of is responsible for that extra ingredient of subjective experience as opposed to intelligent behavior. At least I suspect people's intuitions would be very, unless you deliberately program a system to target our emotions, uh, I'm not sure that people would grant subjectivity to an intelligent system. Well, actually, people have already granted subjectivity to ChatGPT, so that's already happened. But does um, anyone is anyone particularly concerned if you pull the plug on ChatGPT and ready to prosecute someone for murder? Yes, I mean I, I, I've forgotten the details, but just a few weeks ago, one one of the employees there declared that the system was was sentient. As so that as, was Blake, yeah, Blake Lemoyne a couple of years ago. He, he was ironically fired for saying that. This was Lambda, a different large language model. Oh right, okay. So I've got he all said it, but details the, wrong. Yeah, uh, he he did say it. <laughs> But uh, you know his employer disagreed, and uh, I, I'm not convinced. Uh, yeah, yeah. So and, you I, know, when so, I when I shut down ChatGPT, the version running on my computer, you know, I don't think I've committed murder, and I don't think anyone yeah, else would think it. I don't either, but I don't think it's creative. Um, it's pretty creative. You, in fact, I saw on your website that you reproduced a a, a poem that it uh, on electrons. That was I thought that was pretty creative. So I grant I certainly <laughs> granted creativity. I'm not ready to grant it subjectivity. Well, this, this is a matter of how we use words. I mean, the, the, even a calculator can produce a number that's never been seen before um, because, uh, you know, numbers are exponentially, uh, um, range over exponentially large um, range. I think it's more than words, though. I mean, it, it actually is much more than words. So, for example, if someone... Uh, permanently disable the human, namely kill them. I would be outraged. I want that person punished. If someone were to dismantle a, a human-like robot, it'd be awful. I mean, it might be a waste, but uh, I'm not going to try that person for murder. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. There is a difference in intuition. Maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe I'm uh, I, I'm as callous as the people who didn't grant personhood to slaves in the 18th and 19th centuries. But I, I, I don't think so. And uh, although, again, we have, I think we have no way of knowing. I think we're going to be having the same debate a hundred years from now. Um, yeah, may, maybe one of one of the AGIs will be um, participating in the debate by then. Um. <laughs> so I, I have a question for both of you. So earlier this year, Leopold Aschenbrenner, an AI researcher who I think now works at OpenAI, estimated that globally there were it, it seems plausible that there's a ratio of roughly 300 AI or ML researchers to every one AGI safety researcher. Directionally, do you think that ratio of AGI safety researchers to AI or ML capabilities employees seems about right or should we increase it or decrease it, Steve? Well, I think that every AI researcher should be an AI safety researcher in the sense of um, an AI system for it to be useful has to uh, carry out multiple goals, one of which is, well, all of which are ultimately serving human needs. Um, so it doesn't seem to me that there should be some people building AI and some people worried about safety. It should just be an AI system serves human needs. And among those needs are not being harmed. 
I, I agree. As long as we're talking about AI, which, which for all practical purposes, we, we are at present. Um, I, I think at present, the idea of an AI, a, sorry, at present, the idea of an AGI safety researcher is a bit like saying a Starship safety researcher. We, 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 we don't know the technology that Starships are going to use. We don't know the possible drawbacks. We don't know the possible safety issues. Uh, so so it, it doesn't make sense. And AI safety, that's a completely different kind of issue. And it's the same, but, but, but it's a much more boring one. So as, as soon as we realize that we're not into this explosive burst of creativity, you know, the, the singularity or whatever, as long as we realize that this is just a technology, then we're in the same uh, situation as as um, having a having a, a debate about the safety of of uh, driverless cars. We 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 driverless cars is is an AI system. We want it to meet certain safety standards, uh, and it seems that killing fewer people than ordinary cars is not good enough. <laughs> For some reason, so we wanted to kill at least ten times fewer, or at least a hundred times. This is a political debate we're going to have, or we are having. Uh, and then once we have that, once we have that criterion, the engineers can implement it. There's not, there's nothing sort of deep going on there. It's, it's like with every uh, new technology. You know, the first day that a steam locomotive was demonstrated to the public, it killed someone. Killed an MP actually. Um, mm. So um, uh, and and there's no such thing as a completely safe technology. Um, so driverless cars will no doubt kill people, and there'll be an argument that oh yeah okay it killed somebody, but it, it's it's a hundred times safer than human drivers. And then the opposition will say yeah well maybe it's safer in terms of numbers. But it killed this person in a particularly horrible way, which no human driver would ever do. So we don't want that. And and I think that's also that's a reasonable position to take in some situations. Um, yeah. Also, there's some. Uh, I think there's a question of whether safety is going to consist of some additional technology bolted onto the system, say an airbag in a car. That's just there for safety. Versus the uh, a lot of safety is just inherent in the design of a car. That yes. is, you didn't you didn't put brakes in a car and a steering wheel as a safety measure so it would run into walls. That's what a car means. It means yeah. doing what a human wants it to do. Or or the end or say a bicycle tire. You don't have like one set of engineers who have a, a bicycle tire that holds air and then another one that prevents it from uh, having a blowout come falling off the rim and therefore injuring the the, the rider. It's part of the very definition of what a bicycle tire is for, that it not blow up, blow out and, and, and injure the rider. Now, in some cases, maybe you do need an add-on like the airbag, but I think the vast majority of it just goes into the definition of any engineered system as something that is designed to satisfy human needs. I agree. Totally agree. Steve, I've heard you hose down concerns about AI caused existential risk by arguing that it's not plausible that we'll be both smart enough to create a superintelligence, but stupid enough to kind of unleash an unaligned superintelligence 
on the world. And we can always just turn it off if it is malevolent. But, but isn't the problem that we need to be worried about the worst or most incompetent human actors, not the modal actor? And that's kind of compounded by the game theory dynamics of a race to the bottom where if you sort of cut corners on safety, you'll get to AGI more quickly. Well, I think that with, uh, first of all, the, a, the, the more sophisticated a system is, the larger the network of people are uh, required in order to bring it into existence. And the, the more they'll therefore fall under the ordinary constraints and, and, and demands of, uh, you know, of any company, of any uh, uh, institution. That is, the teenager in his basement is unlikely to accomplish something that will defeat uh, the, uh, all of the tech companies and government put together. Uh, there is, a, I, I think, an, an issue about perhaps malevolent actors, someone who say he uses AI to engineer a, a super virus. Um, and there, the, you know, there is the question of whether the, you know, the, the guys, the people with the white hats are going to outsmart the people with the black hats, that is the malevolent actors, as with other technologies, uh, such as, say, nuclear weapons, the, the fear of a suitcase nuclear bomb uh, devised by some malevolent actors in, in their garage. You know, I think we don't don't know the answer, but um, the uh, what I don't think that we have to, you know, among the world's problems, the doomsday scenario of, say, the AI that is programmed to uh, eliminate cancer and does it by exterminating all of humanity because that's what one way of eliminating cancer. For many reasons, that does not keep me up at night. I, mean, I think we have more pressing problems than that, or that turns us all into paperclips if it's been programmed to maximize the number of paperclips because we're raw material for making paperclips. I think that kind of sci-fi scenario is just preposterous for, for many reasons. Uh, and that Probably the real issues of AI safety will become apparent as we develop particular systems and particular applications, and we see the harms that they do, many of which probably can't be anticipated until they're actually built, as with, uh, with other technologies. Uh, again, I totally agree with that. Um, as long as we're still talking about AI, and, and I have to keep stressing that I think we're going to be just talking about AI and not AGI for a very long time yet, I would guess, because I see no sign of AGI on the horizon. Um, uh, but so it's kind of a theoretical, the, the thing we're disagreeing about in regard to AGI is a kind of a purely theoretical issue at the moment that has no practical consequences for hiring people for safety or that, that kind of thing. Just to to somewhat segue out of the the AI topic. So Steve, you've written a book called Rationality and Dave, you're writing a book called Irrationality. Steve, do you think it makes sense to apply subjective probabilities to single instances? For example, the you know rationalist community in Berkeley often likes to talk about what's your P-doom, that is your subjective probability that AI will cause human extinction. Is that a legitimate use of subjective probabilities? Well, certainly one that is not intuitive, and a lot of the classical demonstrations of uh, human irrationality that we associate with, for example, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, a number of them hinge on asking people a question which they really have trouble making sense of, such as what is the probability that 
um, this particular person has cancer. Uh, that's a way of assigning a number to uh, a subjective feeling, which I, I think do think is can be useful. Whether it's useful, whether there's any basis for assigning any such number in the, in the set, case of artificial intelligence killing us all is another question. But the more generic question, could uh, rational thinkers try to put a number between zero and one on their degree of confidence in a proposition? However unnatural that is, I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to do, although it may be unreasonable in cases where we have spectacular ignorance and it's just hit effect picking numbers at random. Dave, I don't know if you want to react to that. Um, well, so we, I, I'm sure we disagree about where to draw the line um, between reasonable uses of, of the concept of probability and unreasonable uses. Uh, I, I probably think that, that uh, I say probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, uh, I, I expect that uh, I would call many more uses irrational the uses of probability calculus than uh, Steve Wood. Hey guys, this is Joe. A quick word from this episode's sponsor before we return to the conversation. So giving season is upon us and I wanted to let you know about one of my favorite organizations, GiveWell. So there are over 1.5 million nonprofit organizations in the United States and millions more around the world. But how do you find the most effective ones? Well, GiveWell was founded to help donors with that question. They scour independent studies and charity data to help donors direct their funds to the highest impact, evidence-backed organizations. Here are three facts that you should know about GiveWell. First, GiveWell has now spent over 15 years researching charitable organizations, and it only directs funding to a few of the highest impact opportunities they've found in global health and poverty alleviation. Second, over 100,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $1 billion, that's billion with a B. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save over 150,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more. And third, GiveWell wants as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about high-impact giving. For that reason, you can find all of their research and recommendations on their site for free. You can make tax-deductible donations to their recommended funds or charities, and GiveWell doesn't take a cut. I personally give to the Against Malaria Foundation, one of GiveWell's top four charities, which distributes bed nets to prevent malaria at a cost of about $5 to provide one net. If you've never donated through GiveWell before, you can have your donation matched up to $100 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. To claim your match, go to givewell.org and pick podcast and enter Joe Walker podcast at checkout. Make sure that they know you heard about GiveWell from the Joe Walker podcast to get your donation matched. Again, that's givewell.org to donate or find out more. All right, let's get back to the conversation. We have um, subjective expectations and they come in various strengths. And I think that um, trying to quantify them with a number um, doesn't really um, do anything. It, it's it's more like it's it's more like saying um, I'm sure, and then somebody says, uh, "Are you very sure?" And you say, "Well, I'm very very sure." But, but you you can't compare. There's no, there's no intersubjective comparison of utilities that you could appeal to to quantify that. And uh, we were just talking about uh, AI doom. Um, 
that's a very good example because uh, if you ask somebody what's your subjective probability for AI doom, well, if they say zero or one, then they're already violating the, the tenets of Bayesian epistemology because zero means that nothing could possibly persuade you that doom is going to happen and and one means nothing could possibly persuade you that it isn't going to happen. Um, sorry, vice versa. Uh, and um, so if you say, but if you say anything other than zero, zero or one, then um, uh, your uh, interlocutor has already won the argument because even if you said one in a million, so they'll say, well, one in a million is much too high uh, probability for the end of civilization, the end of the human race. So we, you've got to do everything we say now to avoid that at all costs. And, and the, the cost is irrelevant because the disutility of uh, the, the, the world civilization ending is infinitely negative. Sorry, the disutility is infinite. The utility is infinitely negative. So... Uh, and this argument has all been about nothing because you're arguing about the content of the other person's brain, which actually has nothing to do with the um, the uh, real probability, which is unknowable, of a physical event that's going to be subject to unimaginably vast numbers of unknown forces in the future. So much better to talk about a thing like that by talking about substance, like we just have been. You know, we're talking about what will happen if somebody makes a computer that does so and so. Yes, that's a reasonable thing to talk about. Talking about what the probabilities in somebody's mind are is irrelevant, and it's always irrelevant unless you're talking about an actual random physical process, like the process that makes the patient come into the, this particular doctor's surgery rather than that particular doctor's surgery. Unless that isn't random, you know. If, you, if, you, if you're a doctor and you live in an area that, that has a lot of Brazilian immigrants in it, then you might think that the, one of them having the Zaka virus is more likely, and that, that's a meaningful um, judgment. Um, but, but when we're talking about things that, that are facts, and it's just that we don't know what they are, then talking about probability doesn't make sense in my view. I guess I'd be a little more charitable to, to it in that the, the uh, uh, although agreeing with, with uh, almost everything that you're saying, but certainly in realms where people are willing to make, a, make a, a bet. Now, of course, maybe those are cases where we've got inherently probabilistic devices like roulette wheels, um, where they're... But, you know, we now do have prediction markets for elections. For uh, I've been following one on what's the probability, or how much? Sorry, what is the the price of a one dollar gamble that the president of Harvard will be forced to resign by the end of the year? And I've been tracking as it goes up. And it is it's certainly meaningful. It responds to events that would have uh, causal consequences of which we're not certain, but which. I think we can meaning, meaningfully differentiate in terms of how likely they are to the extent that we would be have skin in the game. We'd put, put money on them, and over a large number of those bets, we would make a profit or have a loss, depending on how well our subjective credences are calibrated to the structure of the world. And in I, fact, there is a movement in, David, maybe you think this is nonsense, but that um, 
you know, in, in social science, in political forecasting, uh, encouraging people to, to, to bet on their expectations, partly as a way, uh, as kind of a bit of, of, of cognitive hygiene, so that people aren't, uh, resist the temptation to tell a good story to titillate their audiences or to attract uh, attention, but are really, if they have skin in the game, they're going to be much more sober and much more motivated to consider all of the circumstances, and also to avoid you know, well-known traps such as basing expectation on vividness of imagery, on ability to recall similar anecdotes, not taking into account basic laws of probability, such as something that's less likely to happen over a span of 10 years than over a span of one year. And we know from cognitive psychology research that people are uh, often flout very basic laws of probability, and there's a, a kind of discipline in expressing your credence as a number, as a way to, as a kind of cognitive hygiene, so you don't uh, uh, fall into these traps. Yeah, um, and I... I... I think I agree, but but I, I would phrase all that very differently in terms of knowledge. So I think prediction markets are a way of making money out of knowledge that you have. That, that if so, so, supposing uh, I think that um, uh, as I once did, that um, everyone thought that Apple computer was going to uh, fold and and uh, go bankrupt, and I thought that. Um, I, I thought that I know something that most people don't know, and so I bought Apple shares. And so that, that's that. The, the share market is also a kind of prediction market. Prediction markets generalize that, and it's basically a way that people who think that they know something that the other participants don't can make money out of that that knowledge if they're right, and if they're wrong, then they lose money. And so it's 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 not about their subjective feelings at all. I mean, you, I, I, for example, you might be terrified of a of a of a certain bet, but then decide, well, actually, I know this, and they don't, and so it's worth my betting that it will happen. So uh, that, and I'm I'm skeptical that that it will produce mental hygiene because. Ordinary betting on on roulette and horse races and so on doesn't seem to produce mental hygiene. Uh, people people do things that that are probabilistically likely to lose their money or even to lose all their money, and they still cling to the subjective uh, expectations uh, that they had at the beginning. So and that, uh, that, that's certainly so, by the, the, the moment they step foot at the casino, they're on a on a path. To yeah, well, money. By, by the way, I wouldn't the, say the casinos are inherently irrational no, because there are the, many the way, many yeah. reasons for betting other sure. than expecting to make money. You pay for the the suspense and the resolution, yes, and that kind of exactly. Risk. But in the case of say forecasting and, and you know the work by Philip Tedlock and others to show that the uh, the pundits and the op-ed writers who do make predictions are regularly outperformed by the nerds who consciously assign numbers to their degree of, of uh, credence and increment or decrement them, you know, as you say, based on knowledge. And often is knowledge, yes. it's not even secret knowledge, but it's knowledge that they bother to look up that no one else does, such as yes. say, a terrorist attack. They might at least start off with a prior based on the number of terrorist attacks that have taken place in the, in the previous year or previous five years. 
and then bump up or down that number according to new information, new knowledge, exactly as, as you suggest. But it's still very different than what your typical op-ed writer for The Guardian might do. Yes, uh, I, I think I, I would, I, as you might guess, I, I would, I would um, put my money on explanatory knowledge rather than extrapolating trends. But extrapolating trends is, is also a kind of explanatory knowledge, uh, at least in some cases. So um, It is, though, but there is, in general, in, in Tetlock's research, I don't know if this would mean by explanatory uh, a, a prediction, but the people who have uh, big ideas, who have identifiable ideologies, do way worse than the nerds that simply kind of hoover up every scrap of data they can and uh, without narratives or deep explanations, simply to you know, try try to make the best get guess. The people who have actual deep explanations don't write financial stuff in the Guardian. Uh, so, so whenever you whenever you see a pundit saying, uh, you know, whether it's a, an explanatory theory or, or an extrapolation or what, you've always got to say. As the saying goes, uh, if you're so smart, why ain't you rich? Right. right. Yes. And <laughs> and um, uh, and if they are rich, why are you writing op-eds for the Guardian? Yes. So uh, so that that's a, a selection uh, criterion that's going to select for bad participants or or failed participants in the prediction markets. The ones who are succeeding are making money. And uh, as I said, pre prediction markets are like the stock exchange, except generalized, uh, and they're they're a very good thing. And they they transfer money from people who don't know things but think they do, to people who do know things and think they do. Yes, I mean the the uh, added feature of the stock market is that the information is so widely available so quickly that uh, it is an extraordinarily rare for someone to actually have knowledge that others don't and that isn't already or very, very, very quickly priced into the market. Uh, but yes. still, it, it, that does not contradict your point, but just makes it in a uh, in, in this particular application, which yes, is why yes. most I, people on I average... I agree. Or, yeah. Although, there's, so some, some interventions in the market are like speculations um, about the fluctuations. But other things are longer-term things, where you like with with Apple Computer, you know, you 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 think, well, that's not going to fold. If it doesn't fold, it's going to succeed, and if it succeeds, its share price will go up. But uh, it, it also um, uh, there's also feedback onto the companies as well. So that that's a thing that doesn't exist really in the in the prediction markets. I'll jump in. I want to move us to a different topic. So. I want to explore potential limits to David's concept of universal explainers. So Steve, in The Language Instinct, you wrote about how children get pretty good at language around three years of age. They go through the grammar explosion over a period of a few months. Firstly, what's going on in their minds before this age? Before, Sorry, before they uh, their linguistic ability explodes? Right. Yeah, before, yeah. say, the age of three. Well, I think research on cognitive development shows that children do have some core uh, understanding of basic ontological categories of the world. This is research done by my 
colleague Elizabeth Spelke and my uh, my former colleague Susan Carey and and uh, others that kids seem to have a concept of an agent uh, of an object of a living thing, uh, and I I think that that's a prerequisite to learning language in a human manner. That unlike say the large language models such as GPT, which are just fed massive amounts of text and extract uh, statistical patterns out of them. Children are at work uh, trying to figure out why the people around them are making the noises they are, and they correlate some understanding of a likely intention of a speaker with the signals coming out of their, their mouth. It's not pure cryptography over the signals themselves. There's additional information carried by the context of uh, parental speech that kids make use of. They're basically, they, they know that that's, that uh, language is a kind of, more like a transducer than just a pattern signal. That is, sentences have meaning. People say them for a purpose. That is, they're trying to uh, give evidence of their mental states. They're trying to persuade. They're trying to order. They're trying to uh, question. Kids have enough wherewithal to know that other people have these intentions and that when they use language, it's language about things. And that is their way into language, which is why the child only needs three years to speak and chat GPT and GPT-4 would need an equivalent of 30,000 years. So children don't have 30,000 years and they don't need 30,000 years because they're not just doing pure cryptography on the statistical patterns in the, in the uh, language signal. Yes, they're forming explanations. They're forming of, explanations, exactly. Yes. And are they forming explanations from birth? Don't ask me. <laughs> yeah. Um, pretty, pretty close. Uh, well, the, you know, it's harder to do the, the, the studies are hard. The younger the child, the harder it is to get them to pay attention long enough to kind of see what's on their mind. But um, certainly, by, certainly by three months, we know that they are... Uh, tracking objects, they are uh, paying attention to people. Certainly, even newborns try to lock onto faces, are receptive to human voices, including the voice of their own mother, which they probably began to process in utero. Okay, so so let me explore potential limits to universal explainers from another direction. So, so David, the f- so-called first law of behavioral genetics is that every trait is heritable and that notably includes IQ, but it also extends to things like political attitudes. Does the heritability of behavioral traits impose some kind of constraint on your concept of people as universal explainers? Um, It would if it was true or or rather... um uh so the debate about heritabilities first of all heritability uh, means two different things one is that that uh you're likely to have the uh, same traits as your parents and you know, people you're genetically related to and that these these similarities follow follow the rules of mendelian genetics and that kind of thing so that's one meaning of heritability but um in in that meaning um like where you live is heritable so um and another meaning is that the the tra- trait the behavior in question 
is controlled by genes in the same way that the eye color is controlled by genes. That the, the, the gene produces a protein which interacts with other proteins and other chemicals and, and a long chain of um, cause and effect and eventually ends up with you doing a certain thing like hitting someone in the face in the pub. Uh, and and uh, if you never go to pubs, then this behavior is never activated, but it, but the propensity to engage in that behavior in that situation is still there. Um, now, I think this... Um, uh, so one extreme says that all behavior is controlled in that way, and another extreme says that no behavior is controlled in that way. It's all social construct. It's actually all fed into you by by your culture, by your parents, by your uh, by your um, peers, and so on. Now, I think not only do I think that neither of those is true, but I think that the usual way out of this conflict by saying, actually, it's a an intimate causal. Um, relationship interplay between the genetic and the environmental um, influences, uh, and we can't necessarily untangle it. But in some cases, we can say that uh, genes are very important in this in this thing, and in other cases, we can say they're they're relatively unimportant in this trait. I would say that that whole framing is wrong. It misses the main determinant of human behavior, which is creativity. And creativity is something that doesn't necessarily come from anywhere. It might do. You, you might have a creativity that is conditioned by your parents or by your culture or by your genes. Um, for example, you know, if you, if, you have, if you have a very good visuospatial um, hardware in your brain, I don't know if, we have, if there is such a thing, but suppose there were, um, then uh, you might decide to, uh, you might find playing basketball um, rewarding because you can get the satisfaction of seeing your intentions uh, fulfilled. And if you're also very tall and, and so on, you can see how the genetic factors might affect your creativity. But it can also happen the other way around. So if someone is shorter than normal, they might still become a great tennis player. So Michael Chang was, I think, five foot nine, and the average tennis player was at the time was six foot three or something. And Michael Chang nevertheless got into the top whatever it was, and nearly won Wimbledon. And I can imagine telling a story about that. I don't know actually, you know, why Michael Chang became a tennis player, but I can imagine a story where his innate suitability for tennis, that is his height, but also perhaps his, his uh, coordination, you know, all the other inborn things that, the things that might be inborn, that they might be less than usual, and that therefore he might have spent more of his creativity during his childhood in compensating for that, and he compensated it so well that in fact he uh, became a better tennis player than those who were genetically suitable for it. And in a certain society, if I can just add the social thing as well, it, it's also plausible that in a certain society that would happen quite often because, uh, you know, in, in Gordonston School where, where Prince Charles uh, went to school, they had this appalling custom that if, if uh, a boy, it was only boys in those days, 
if a boy didn't like a particular activity, then they'd be forced to do it more. And if, if that form of instruction was effective, you'd end up with people emerging from the school who were better at the things that they were less genetically inclined to do and worse at the things they were more genetically inclined to do. So, okay, bottom line, I think that, that um, creativity is hugely undervalued as a factor in the outcome of people's behavior. And although creativity can be affected in the ways I've said, sometimes perversely, by genes and by culture, um, that doesn't mean that it's it's not all due to creativity. Um, it, it, because the people who were good at, say, tennis um, will turn out to be the ones that have devoted a lot of thought to tennis. Um, if that was due to them being genetically suitable, then so be it. But if, if it was due to them being genetically unsuitable, but they still devoted the creativity, then they would be good at tennis. Of course, not sumo wrestling. But I, I, well, I chose a sport that's, that's rather cerebral. Let me, let me put it somewhat differently. You know, her heritability, as it's used in the field of behavioral genetics, is a measure of individual differences. So it is not even meaningful to talk about the heritability of, an, of the intelligence of one person. Uh, it is a measure of how the extent to which the differences in a sample of people, and it's always re relative to that sample, can be attributed to the genetic differences among them. It is it can be measured in many ways, or I should know, should be measured in four ways, each of which takes into account the fact that people who are related also tend to grow up in similar environments. And so you can, one of the methods is you compare identical and fraternal twins, identical twins share all their genes um, and, and their environment, fraternal twins share half their genes and their environment. And so by seeing if identical twins are more similar than fraternal twins, that's a way of teasing apart uh, a first approximation, heredity and environment. Another one is to look at twins separated at birth who share their genes but not their environment. And to the, to the extent that they are correlated, that suggests that genes play a role. And the third way is to compare the similarities, say, of adoptive siblings and biological siblings. Adoptive siblings share their environment but not their genes. Uh, biological siblings share both. And now, more recently, there's a fourth method of actually looking at the genome itself and genome-wide association uh, uh, studies to see if the pattern of variable genes is statistically correlated with certain traits like uh, intelligence, like creativity, if we had a, a good measure of creativity. Uh, and so you can ask, why is the difference between two people, to, to what extent is the difference between two people attributable to their genetic differences? Although those techniques don't tell you anything about the intelligence of you know of Mike or the intelligence of, of uh, Lisa herself. Now, heritability is uh, always less than one. Um, it is surprisingly much greater than zero, pretty much for every human trait that we know, uh, psychological trait that we know how to measure. And that isn't uh, obviously true a priori. You wouldn't necessarily expect that, say, if you have identical twins separated at birth and you growing up in very different environments, and, and we 
There are cases like that, such as one twin who grew up as in a Jewish family in Trinidad, another twin who grew up as a, in a Nazi family in Germany. And then when they met in the lab, they were wearing the same clothes, had the same uh, habits and quirks, and, uh, and indeed political orientation, not perfectly, so we're talking about statistical resemblances here. But before you knew how the studies came out, I think most of us wouldn't necessarily have predicted that political liberal to conservative beliefs or libertarian to communitarian beliefs would at all be correlated between twins separated at birth, for example, or uncorrelated in biological sibling, in adoptive siblings growing up in the same family. So I think that is a significant finding. I don't think it can uh, can be blown off. Although, again, it doesn't, it's true that it does not speak to David's question of how a particular behavior, including novel creative behavior was produced by that person that, at that time. That's just not what heritability is all is, is about. Right. Yes, uh, but but even even when um, uh, you know you can say um, whether a gene influences in a population, whether similarities in genes uh, influence a behavior, but but unless you have an explanation, you don't know what that influence consists of. It. It, it might consist, it might operate via, for example, the person's appearance, so that um, people who are good-looking are treated differently from people who aren't good-looking, and that would be true even for identical twins reared separately. And there's also the fact that um, when people um, uh, grow up, they... they um, they sometimes change their political views. So the stereotype is that that you're you're left wing when you're when you're young and in your twenties, and then when you when you get in, into your forties and fifties and older, you become more and more right wing. There's the, the now, saying attributed to many people that anyone who is not a socialist when they're young has no heart, and anyone who is a socialist when they're old has no head. Yes, uh, I've tried to track that down, and it's been attributed to many. Uh, uh, quotesters over the years. But uh, right. it's not completely true, by the way. There's some something of a uh, life cycle effect in political attitudes, but there's a much bigger cohort effect. So people tend to carry their political beliefs with them as they age. Well, but, so regard, they tend not... to, in our culture, so that there, are, there are other cultures in which they absolutely always do, because only one um, political orientation is, is tolerated. Um, in a different society, one that perhaps doesn't exist yet, which is more liberal than ours, it might be that people change their political um, orientation every five years. Typically. Well, that's an empirical. I mean, that that I mean, you, we, neither of us can uh, determine that from our armchairs. I mean, that is an empirical question that you'd have to test. Well, I, I, you can't test whether it could happen. Well, that so, that is true. You could test whether it does happen. Yes, exactly. Uh, just begin back. By the way, it is within. The field of behavioral genetics, it's it's well recognized that heritability per se is a correlational statistic. So it, if a trait is heritable, it doesn't automatically mean that it is via the effects of a uh, the genes on brain operation uh, per se. You're right that it could be via the body, could be via the appearance, it could be uh, indirectly via a personality trait or a cognitive style that inclines someone towards picking some environments over others. So that if you are smart, 
you're more likely to spend time in libraries and in, in school. You're going to stay in school longer. If you're not so smart, you won't. Um, and so the environment, it's not that the environment doesn't matter, but the environment in those cases is actually downstream from genetic differences, sometimes called a gene-environment correlation, where your genetic endowment predisposes you to uh, spend more time in one environment than in another. So also, what are, what are the possible explanations for another surprising finding that some traits such as intelligence uh, tend to increase inheritability as you get older, and effects of familial environment tend to decrease, contrary to the mental image one might have that as the twig is bent, so grows the branch. That uh, early, uh, uh, that the as we live our our lives, we may uh, differentiate. As we live our lives, we tend to be more more predictable based on our genetic endowment. Perhaps because there are more opportunities for us to place ourselves in the environment that make the best use of our heritable talents. Whereas when you're a kid, you got to spend a lot of time in whatever environment your parents place you in. As you get older, you get to choose your environment. So again, they're not the, the genetic endowment is not a, a uh, an alternative to an environmental influence, but it, in many cases, it may be that the environmental influence is actually an effect of a genetic difference. Yes, yes, like in the examples we just said. But I, I, I just want to carry on like a broken record and say that um, that something is, is only partly co uh, caused, directly caused by genes doesn't mean that the rest is caused by environment. It could be that yep. the rest is caused by creativity, by something that's unique to the person. And it could be that the proportion of behaviors that is unique to, to the person is itself determined by the genes and by the environment. So in one culture, people are allowed to be more creative in their in their lives. And um, William Godwin said something like, I can't I can't say the quote exactly, but it was something like, two boys walk side by side through the same forest. They are not having the same experience. Uh, and they they one reason is that one of them's on the left and one of them's on the right, and they're seeing different bits of forest, and one of them may see a thing that interests him, and so on. But it's also because internally, they they are walking through a different environment. One of them is walking through his problems; the other one is work, walking through his problems. And um, so, the the um, uh, if you can account for, if you could, in principle, account for some behavior, uh, perhaps statistically, entirely in terms of genes and environment, it would mean that the environment was destroying creativity. Let me, let me actually cite some data that are maybe may relevant to this because they are right out of behavioral genetics. Namely that if you, behavioral genetics sometimes distinguish between the shared or familial environment and this rather ill-defined entity called the non-shared or unique environment. I, I think it's actually a misnomer, but it refers to the following empirical phenomenon. So each of the techniques that I uh, explained earlier with, let's just take, say, identical twins, say, separated at birth, compare them to identical twins brought up together. Now, the fact that correlation between identical twins separated at birth is much greater than zero uh, suggests that genes matter. It's not all the environment in terms of these, this variation. However, identical twins reared together do not correlate 
at 1.0 or, or, or even the you know, 0.995. In many traits, they correlate around 0.5. Now, it's interesting that that's greater than zero. It's also interesting that it's less than 1.0. And it means that of the things that affect, say, personality, they, uh, David, you might want to attribute this to creativity, but they are neither genetic nor are they products of the aspects of the environment that are obvious, that are easy to measure, such as whether you have older siblings, whether you're an only child, whether there are books in the home, whether there are guns in the home, whether there are uh, TVs in the home, because those all are same in twins reared together. Nonetheless, they are not indistinguishable. Now, one way of just of, of characterizing this, well, maybe they uh, there's a causal effect of some minute infinitesimal difference, like if you sleep in the top bunk bed or the bottom bunk bed, or you walk on the left or you walk on the right. Another one is that there could be effects that are, for all intents and purposes, random, that as the brain develops, for example, the genome couldn't possibly specify the wiring diagram down to the last synapse. It makes us human by keeping variation in development within certain functional boundaries, but within those boundaries, there's a lot of sheer randomness. And perhaps it could be, and David, you'll tell me, tell me if this is, if this harmonizes with your conception, creativity in the sense that we have cognitive processes that are open-ended, combinatorial, where it's conceivable that small differences in the initial state of thinking through a problem could diverge as we start to think about them more and more, uh, so that they may even have started out in, uh, essentially random, but end up in very different places. Now, would that count as what you're describing as creativity? Because ultimately, yes. creativity itself has to be, it's not a miracle, it uh, ultimately yes. has to come from some mechanism in the brain, which, and then you could ask the question, why are the brains of two identical twins specified by the same genome? Why would their, cre their creative processes as they unfold take them in different directions? Yes, so that that's very much captures what I wanted to say. Although I, I must add that it's always a bit misleading to talk about high-level things, especially in knowledge creation, in terms of um, the microscopic substrate. Because, uh, you know, if you say um, uh, the reason why something or other happened, the reason why Napoleon lost the Battle of Waterloo was because ultimately it was because an atom went left rather than right uh, several years before. Um, even if that's true, it doesn't explain what happened. It's, it's only possible to explain the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo by talking about things like strategy, tactics, guns, numbers of soldiers, political um, imperatives, you know, all, all that kind of thing. And it's the same with a child growing up in a home, it, it's it's not helpful to say that the reason that the two identical twins have a different uh, outcome in such and such a way is because there was a random difference in their brains, uh, even though it was the same DNA program. Uh, and that was eventually amplified into different opinions. Uh, it, it's much more explanatory, much more... Um, much it matches the reality much better to say um, uh, 
one of them decided that um, his autonomy was more important to him than praise, and the other one didn't. And perhaps, perhaps that's even too big a thing to say. So even a smaller thing would be would would be legitimate. But I think as small as a as a molecule doesn't tell us anything. Right. By the way, there's uh, I, 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 much that I agree with, and it's even an answer to Joe's very first question of what do I appreciate in David's work is one thing that captivated me immediately is that he, like I, uh, locate explanations of human behavior at the level of knowledge, thought, cognition, not the level of neurophysiology. That's why I'm not a, a, a neuroscientist, why I'm a cognitive scientist, because I do think the perspicuous level of explaining human thought is at the level of knowledge, information, uh, uh, inference, rather than at the level of neural uh, circuits. The, the the problem in the case of the, say, of the twins, though, is that you, um, because they uh, are in, as best we can tell, the same environment, because they do have the same uh, or very similar brains, although, again, I think they are different because of, of, of random processes during brain development, uh, together with possibly somatic mutations that each one accumulated after uh, conception. Uh, so they are different, but it's going to be very difficult to find a cause at the level of explanation that we agree is most perspicuous, given that their uh, past experience is, as best we can tell, uh, indistinguishable. Now, it could be that we could trace it if we followed them every moment of their life with a body cam uh, we could identify something that predictably for any person on the planet, given the exposure to that particular perceptual experience, would send them off in a, in a particular direction. Although it also could be that creativity, which we're both uh, both interested in, has some kind of, I don't know if you'd want to call it a chaotic component or undecidable component, but it may be that it's in the nature of creativity that given identical inputs, it may not end up at the same place. And I agree with I'm that. I'm going to jump in there. Yep. Well, I do want to finish on the topic of progress. So I have three questions and I'll uncharacteristically play the role of the pessimist here. So you two can gang up on me if you like. But the, the first question, can either of you name any cases in which you would think it reasonable or appropriate to halt or slow the development of a new technology? Steve? Um, sure. It depends on the technology, but if, and we depend on the argument. But I can imagine, say, the gain of function research in, in uh, virulent viruses may uh, have costs that, that uh, outweigh the benefit in the knowledge. And there may be maybe many other examples. I think mean, it have to be examined on a case by case basis. David, so there's there's a difference between um, halting the research and and making the research secret. So the obviously the the Manhattan Project had to be kept secret, otherwise it it wouldn't work. And <laughs> they were trying to make a weapon, and the weapon wouldn't be effective if if everybody had it. Um. So, but whether whether it's um, can I think of an example where where it's a good idea to hold the research altogether? Um. Mm. Yes, I I. I can't think of an example at the moment. Maybe this gain of function um, thing is is an example where, under some, 
um, under some circumstances, there would be an argument for a moratorium. But the trouble with moratoria is that not everybody will obey it. And the bad actors are, are definitely not going to obey it if the result would be um, a military advantage to them. I mean, you could put it in a different sense of where, where it isn't a question of uh, putting a moratorium but not making the positive decision to invest vast amounts of brain power and resources into, into a problem where we should just desist and it won't happen unless you have the equivalents of a Manhattan Project. I think we can ask the question, uh, I don't know if it's, it's answerable, but would the atomic bomb have been invented if it were not for the special circumstances of a war against the Nazis and an expectation that the Nazis themselves were working on an atomic weapon? That is, does technology necessarily have a, a kind of a momentum of, of its own so that we it was inevitable that if we had a hundred civilizations in a in, in hundred planets, all of them would develop nuclear weapons at this stage of development? Or was it just really bad luck and would we have been better off? Obviously, we'd be better off if there were no Nazis, but uh, if there were no Nazis, would we inevitably have developed them or would we have been, since we would have been better off not? The, the, the Japanese could have done it as well if they'd put enough resources into it. They had the scientific knowledge and they had already... Uh, made biological weapons of mass destruction. They, 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 they never used them on America, but they did use them on China. So there were, there were um, bad actors, but all those things, so nuclear weapons and uh, biological weapons, they required the resources of some quite rich states yeah. um, at that time in the 1940s. But, could, so uh, we, could we, if we replayed history, is there a history in which we would have had all of the technological progress that we've now enjoyed, but it just never occurred to anyone to set up at fantastic expense a Manhattan Project. We just were better off without nuclear weapons, so why invest all of that brain power and resources to, to invent one, unless, he, unless the, you were in a specific circumstance having reason to believe that the, the Nazis or Imperial Japan was doing it? Um, I, I think that this, so although it's very unlikely that it, they would have been invented in 1944-45, um, by the by, the time we get to you know twenty twenty three, I think that um, the the secret that this is possible would have got out by now because we know that we knew even then that the amount of energy uh, available in in uranium is enormous, um, and uh, the Germans were by the way thinking of making a dirty bomb with it and uh, something less than a nuclear weapon. Uh, I think by now it would have been uh, known, and there are countries that have developed nuclear weapons already, like North Korea, who I think by now would have them. And they'd be very much more dangerous if the West didn't have them as well. I, I, you know, I, I wonder. There are. Uh, I think what we have to do is think of uh, the counterfactual of other weapons where the technology uh, yeah, could exist if, society, if countries devoted a comparable amount of resources into developing them? Uh, is it possible to, to uh, generate tsunamis by planting explosives in, in, in deep ocean uh, uh, faults to trigger earthquakes as a kind of weapon or to control the weather or to cause... Uh, you know, 
uh, weather catastrophes by seeding clouds. If we developed, if we had a Manhattan Project for those, could there have been a uh, development of those technologies where once we have them, we say, well, it's inevitable that we would have them, but in fact, it did depend on particular decisions to exploit that option, which is not trivial uh, for any society to do, but it did require the positive commitment of, of uh, resources and a national effort. Yeah, I, I can imagine that, that there are universes in which nuclear weapons weren't developed, but say biological weapons were developed. Where about uh, none of them? What, just uh, uh, let's, let's be optimistic for a second in terms of our thought experiment. Could there be one where we had microchips and vaccines and moonshots, but no weapons of mass destruction? Well, I, I don't think there can be many of those because we haven't solved the problem of how to spread the enlightenment to, to um, bad actors. Uh, we will have to eventually, otherwise we're doomed. Um, the, I think the reason that a, a wide variety of uh, weapons of mass destruction, civilization ending weapons, that kind of thing, have not been developed is that the nuclear weapons are in are in the hands of of uh, enlightenment countries, and so it's pointless to try to attack America with with uh, biological weapons because even if they don't have biological weapons, they will reply with nuclear weapons. So, um, so, so once there are weapons of mass destruction in the hands of the good guys, it gives us decades of um, leeway in which to try to prevent, try to suppress the existence of of bad actors, state-level bad actors. But, you know, the fact that it's expensive, that decreases with time, you know. it, it, it uh, right. For a country to make nuclear weapons now requires a much smaller proportion of its national wealth than it did in 1944. Uh, and that will increase. That 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 effect will increase to, uh, to the to the in the future. But is that true to the extent that some country beforehand has made that investment, so the knowledge is there, and that if they hadn't, then it wouldn't that that uh, kind of Moore's it, it law would, would not it apply. It would hold unless... up. It would hold them up by a finite amount, by a fixed and finite amount, whose cost would go down with time. Okay, penultimate question. So there's been a, a well-observed slowdown in scientific and technological progress since about 1970. And there are two broad categories of explanations for this. One is that we have somehow picked all of the low-hanging fruits, and so ideas are getting harder to find. And the second category relies on more kind of cultural explanations. Like, for example, maybe academia has become too bureaucratic. Maybe society, more broadly, has become too risk-averse too safety-focused. Given the magnitude of the slowdown, doesn't it have to be the case that ideas are getting harder to find? Because it seems implausible that a slowdown this large could be purely or mostly driven by the cultural explanations. Um, David, I, I, I think I kind of know your response to this question, although I'm, I'm yeah. curious to hear your answer. So Steve, I might start with you. I suspect there's some of each that almost by definition, unless every scientific problem is equally hard, which seems unlikely, uh, we're going to solve the easier ones before the harder ones, and the harder ones are going to take longer to solve. Uh, 
So we have, you know, we, we do go for the low hanging fruit uh, sooner. It's not, uh, you know, of course, it also depends on how you count the scientific problems and solutions. You know, I, I think of an awful lot of breakthroughs since the 1970s. I don't know how well you could quantify the rate. But then I think there, there, one could perhaps point to society-wide commitments that seem to be getting um, uh, diluted, certainly in the United States. There are many decisions that I think will have the effect of slowing down progress. The main one being the retreat from uh, meritocracy, the fact that uh, we're seeing uh, gifted programs, specialized science and math schools, uh, educational commitments toward scientific and mathematical uh, excellence being watered down sometimes on the basis of rather dubious uh, uh, worries about equity across racial groups as superseding the benefits of going all ahead on nurturing scientific talent wherever it's found. The So uh, I think it almost has to be some of each. Um, David? So I, I disagree, as you as you predicted. <laughs> By the way, you said you were only going to be pessimistic on one question. Now you've been pessimistic on a second question. Um, no, I've got I've got I, I had three I, pessimistic questions. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. So there's one more. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, um, I I don't think that uh, there is less low hanging fruit now than there was a hundred years ago, um, because. Um, when when there's a fundamental discovery, it not only picks a lot of what turns out to be, with hindsight, lower hanging fruit. Although it didn't didn't seem like that when uh, in advance, um, but it also creates new fruit trees. If I can uh, increase, the, can continue this metaphor. So there there are there are new um, there are new problems. For example, uh, you know, in my own field, quantum computers. Quantum computers couldn't exist before, the field of quantum computers couldn't exist before there was quantum theory and computers. They both had to exist. There's, there's, there's no such thing as it being, um, having been low-hanging low fruit all along in 1850 as well. It, it wasn't. It was a thing that, that emerged, a new problem, creating new low-hanging fruit. But then, if I can continue my historical speculation about this as well to make a different point it wasn't in fact um, quantum computers weren't in fact invented um, in the 1930s or 40s or 50s when they had a deep knowledge of quantum theory and of um, computation and both those fields were regarded by their respective sciences as important and had a lot of people working on them Although a lot in those days is a lot was a lot less than what a lot counts as today, but uh, I think the reason that it took until the 1980s for anyone to even think that physics, that the, the computation might be physics, was, as you put it, cultural or societal or whatever. The 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 beginnings of positivism and instrumentalism and the irrationality in in um, wave function collapse and that kind of theory the the 
the breakdown of philosophy as well, um, and uh, and uh, in in computer science, the domination of computer science by mathematicians, by by um, people who had what I have called the mathematician's misconception, which is that that um, um, proof and um, uh, computation uh, exist uh, abstractly and that they can be studied abstractly without needing to know what the underlying physics is. Um, so um, I think nobody thought of this and the reason they didn't think of it was the, that even then um, scientific research was directed towards um, incremental solution of problems rather than anything fundamental. I think another 50 years back, people at the foundations of every field of science wanted to gravitate towards fundamental discoveries. Um, 50 years ago, that was much less true. Now, fundamental discoveries are absolutely suppressed by the funding system, by the, by the career system, by the, by the expectations of scientists, by the a way that um, young people are educated by everything, the, the, the science journalism, everything is, is just assumed to be incremental. So that, that's why journalists always ask me uh, whether, what effect I expect quantum computers to have on, on the economy, on cryptography or whatever. Whereas I'm interested in what effect... Um, uh, the quantum theory of computation will have on our understanding of physics. Nobody wants to work on that because that is not rewarded in the in the present culture. So I think it's it's uh, and you know I I don't disagree at all with with the cultural factors that Stephen mentioned. In addition to this instrumentalism and over-specialization and, and the career structure and all that stuff, there is also sheer irrationality. There are, there are uh, irrational trends which have taken over universities, even in STEM subjects. Um, the very fact that I call them STEM subjects is a, is a symptom of, of this phenomenon. <laughs> I'd like to echo everybody. It's certainly true, and I will. I'll, I, uh, I should have thought of that there really are questions that uh, could not even have been conceived until certain changes in understanding were already in place. You know, until you had the idea of, say, of Darwin's theory of evolution, there just wasn't a question of, say, what is the uh, adaptive function of music, or does it have one? Yeah. It's just not a. It's, a, it's not not a question that would have occurred to anyone, and there are many, and and that uh, I would have to agree that 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 always happens. That trees sprout, maybe the low hanging fruit falls, and the seeds germinate, and the new trees, whatever metaphor. Yeah, I and, and when when the human race does not take advantage of that, that's something that needs explanation. That that's not um, that's not going to happen by accident because there are smart young people out there who want to uh, understand the world and who, who want to devote their lives to understanding the world. And if they are diverted into, um, I don't know if this metaphor works, but into just 
picking up fruit that's already fallen from the tree, uh, then um, something malign is producing that. Yes. And we are seeing in um, a lot of journals and scientific societies a rejection of the Enlightenment idea that the search for truth uh, yes. is indeed is possible and desirable. And there are actual guidelines in journals like Nature Human Behavior that you may not publish a result that seems to make one human group uh, look uh, worse than another one, or that might be demeaning or insulting. And if all of our science has to flatter all of us all the time, that's a different criterion from the most uh, explanatory, most accurate view of the world that you could uh, attain. And we are seeing a, a, a kind of diversion toward goals other than truth and deep explanation. Yep. Right. I agree. And it is terrible. So final question, because I know we've come up on time. There may be some physical limit to how much we can grow in the universe. So to give an example, the philosopher Will McCaskill, but also other thinkers like I think Holden Karnofsky have written that if we continue our roughly 2% economic growth rate, within about 10,000 years, we'll be at the point where we have to produce an implausible amount of output per atom that we can reach in order to sustain that growth rate. So if it is true that there is some physical constraint on how much we can continue to grow, do that, should that make us pessimists about the ultimate course of civilization or civilizations in the universe? So in, if, if this is, so the short answer is no, <laughs> but uh, it is true that if we, if we continue to grow at 2% per year or whatever it is, then in 10,000 or 100,000 years or whatever it is, we will no longer be able to grow exponentially because we will be occupying a sphere which is growing. And if the outside of the sphere is growing at the speed of light, then the uh, volume of the sphere <laughs> can only be increasing uh, like the cube of the time and not like the exponential of the time. So that's true. But that assumes all sorts of things, uh, all sorts of ridiculous extrapolations to 10,000 years in the future. So, for example... Feynman said there's plenty of room at the bottom. There's a lot more room. You know, you assume that the number of atoms will, will be the limiting thing. Uh, what if we make computers out of quarks? What if we make new quarks to make computers out of? Okay, the quarks have a certain size. What about energy? Well, as far as we know now, there's no lower limit to how, uh, to how uh, little energy is needed to perform a given computation. We'll have to refrigerate ourselves uh, to to uh, go down to that level, but but there's no limit. So we can imagine efficiency of computation increasing without limit. Then when we get past quarks, we'll get to the quantum gravity domain, which is many orders of magnitudes smaller than the than the quark domain. We don't know what that that we have no idea how gravitons behave at the quantum gravity level. For all we know, there's an infinite amount of space at the bottom. But, you know, we're now, we're now talking about 
a million years in the future, two million years in the future, um, our very theories of cosmology are changing on a timescale of a decade. So it, it's, it's absurd to extrapolate um, our existing theories of cos cosmology 10,000 years into the future to obtain a pessimistic conclusion um, which has no, um, which there's no reason to believe is, 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 it takes into account the science that will exist at that time. Also, I'll add, and this is a theme that, that uh, David has explored as well, but humans really thrive on, uh, on information, on knowledge, not just on stuff. So when you talk about growth, it doesn't mean more and more and more stuff. Uh, it could mean better and better and better information, more entertaining uh, virtual experiences, uh, more uh, remarkable uh, discoveries or uh, ways of, of encountering the world that may not actually need more and more energy, but just yes. rearranging pixels and bits in uh, different combinations of which that we know the space of possibilities is unfathomably big and growth could consist of uh, better for cures for disease based on faster search in the space of possible drugs and uh, many other uh, massive advances that don't actually require more joules of energy or more grams of material, but but could thrive on information, which is uh, which is not uh, and limited. even information um, it, it it might largely um, require replacing existing information rather than adding to information. Mm. So you're getting rid of all so the things we, that we know we may that are not false. need exponentially growing amounts of computer memory. Um, if we have better and better, more and more efficient ways of using computer memory. In the long run, maybe we will, but that long run is so long that our scientific knowledge of today is, is not going to be relevant to it. Well, I think that's a nice optimistic note to finish on. It has been an honor and fascinating to host this dialogue. I'll Thank each of you individually, and if you like, you can leave us with a brief parting comment. So firstly, David Deutsch, thank you so much for joining me. Well, as I said, thank you for having me, and I'm glad you made, made a pivot to optimism at the last moment. So <laughs> stick on that tack. <laughs> and Stephen Pinker, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure, and I'll just add that optimism is not just a matter of uh, temperament in board or other, but a matter of rationally analyzing our uh, history and rationally analyzing what progress would consist of. Yep. Thanks so much for listening. You can find a full transcript and a video on my website. Go to jnwpod.com. That's jnwpod.com. As always, the main way you can help the show is by sharing it with people who might be interested. Text this episode to a friend, put it in a WhatsApp group, share it on Twitter. The main way I grow is through word of mouth. Thank you again. Until next time. Ciao.